0: Hello, babies. Welcome to Whitlock's Weekly Firestarters. I'm your guy, your choice, the man with the voice, Uncle Jimmy. Hey, let's get down to it. Thank you for tuning in. You know what we do. This is the place where you come in to get your updates on what's going on with Jason Whitlock and the whole fearless army. This is where you come to to find out what you missed. So with no further delay, let's get to it. On Monday's show, Jason talked about the recent shooting in Sacramento. And once again, folks started coming out the woodwork talking about what? You know it, gun control. Jason goes in and tells us why he believes that now is the best time to be for the Second Amendment and why we better hold on strong to this one. Guys,
1: take a listen. Uh, The tragic mass shooting in downtown Sacramento Sunday morning provided President Joe Biden NBA coach Steve Kerr and other political leftists a platform to pretend to care about gun violence and advocate for gun control. Uh, President Biden said today, and this is in a statement, today, America again mourns for another community devastated by gun violence. In a single act in Sacramento, six individuals left dead and at least a dozen more injured. Families forever changed. Survivors left to heal wounds, both visible and invisible. We must do more than mourn. We must act. Ban ghost guns. Require background checks for all gun sales. Ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Repeal gun manufacturers' immunity from liability. Uh, Of course, Biden conveniently ignores the fact that California is home to some of the most restrictive gun laws in this nation. Those laws have not stopped one crip or blood from possessing a gun and discharging it at their discretion. Criminals do not care about laws. That's why they're criminals. Steve Kerr's Golden State Warriors were in Sacramento to play the Kings over the weekend. Kerr is never reluctant to virtue signal or amplify a Democrat talking point. He did not disappoint on Sunday. Take a listen.
2: It's just devastating news. Um, And I know we'll have a moment of silence uh, before the game. Um, And I'll be honest, I think it's the right thing to do to have a moment of silence. But I'll be honest, it's probably the ninth or tenth moment of silence that I will have experienced as coach of the Warriors when we... um, mourn the losses, are our uh, people who have died in, in mass shootings, so I don't think moments of silence are going to do anything. Um, at some point, at some point, our government has to decide, um, are we going to have some common sense gun laws? It's not going to solve everything, but it will save lives.
1: Mm. Here's the problem, Steve Kerr. Leftists do not want common sense gun laws. They want to repeal the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. I used to agree with leftists on this issue. A decade ago, following a murder-suicide by Kansas City Chiefs linebacker Jovan Belcher, I wrote an infamous column attacking the National Rifle Association and and the Second Amendment. Bob Costas read the column on air during a broadcast of NBC's Sunday Night Football. At the time, I foolishly thought the Second Amendment had outlived its usefulness. The thought was rooted in the belief that all Americans valued freedom and order, and that those shared values provided us more protection against an oppressive government than guns. The last decade has made me disavow that belief. The puppet masters of the left do not value freedom and order. They value power and control above all else. Freedom and order, in their view, are luxury items purchased by the uber rich and rationed to the well-behaved working class. In the 246-year history of the United States, the Second Amendment has never been more sacrosanct than today. The right to bear arms is the only thing standing between us and an unmasked dictatorship. Our government is unwilling to protect our constitutionally guaranteed freedoms or our safety. The government surrendered freedom of speech to Silicon Valley tech companies. The government surrendered our major cities to criminals, gangs, Antifa, and Black Lives Matter protesters. Our government emasculated law enforcement. Teacher unions control the education of our kids. Why would any American citizen turn over their guns in the current climate established by leftists? We're going to rely on the police? Police in Canada, at the behest of the government, crack down on peaceful truck drivers police and FBI agents in America, baited and entrapped unarmed citizens at the Capitol and then served as corroborating witnesses in a bogus corporate media narrative that painted angry protesters as participants in a violent coup attempt. The behavior and words of Joe Biden and Steve Kerr increase America's appetite for self-protection through gun ownership. Dishonesty and cluelessness from the people in charge and the people with the loudest voices breeds paranoia and belief in conspiracy. You can't produce order from disorder. People who who do not value order cannot produce it. Gun laws won't fix broken families. It's the equivalent of street gangs replacing nuclear families. American citizens know this, even if our politicians and media talking heads loathe to admit it. We also know what happened in Sacramento this weekend is not remotely unfamiliar to anyone who has spent time in America's major cities. Nightclubs close, Black patrons mill around in the parking lot and hope there is no gun violence before they exit the scene in their cars or in an Uber. It's a symptom of urban decay, the rot and destruction of the black family. One video I watched of the Sacramento incident captured the sound of 76 shots in 54 seconds. It sounded like Friday night in Chicago or Friday night in Baltimore or Philadelphia, or Friday night in Indianapolis, or any day of the week in the Ukraine. We've grown accustomed to this sound, ignoring the sound and collateral damage have been normalized. Maybe we'll be shocked this time and learn that the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys, and the KKK were responsible for this shooting. That would certainly make Joe Biden and Steve Kerr happy, but it won't change the fact that if Biden and Kerr were legitimately interested in a reduction in gun violence, they would advocate for traditional family structure and respect for law enforcement. They would oppose Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and street gangs as strongly as they oppose right-wing militias. Who do you think is more responsible for dead black men, the Proud Boys or the Crips? Are the Proud Boys responsible for one black murder? One, I don't know, tell me. I don't think the people killed in Charlottesville or the person killed, I don't think it was a black person. So do the Proud Boys have one black body on their resume? But they're an existential threat to America and black America. They're the white supremacy that must be stopped before black people can feel safe. If Democrats want to repeal the Second Amendment, they should work to create a climate in which American citizens feel safe from government tyranny, big tech censorship, destructive organized unrest disguised as social justice, and the violence pervasive in single parent communities. Three things produce a civil society. Truth, nuclear families, and respect for law enforcement. As long as the left opposes all three, don't get mad that people prefer to keep all of their guns. On Tuesday's
0: show, we talk about one of the richest men in the world, And no, I'm not talking about Jason Whitlock. I'm talking about billionaire Elon Musk. He recently became the largest individual and shareholder of Twitter. And if you remember, he said a few days before that he was going to start his own new Twitter. Well, anyway, a lot of people are praising this move, but ah, our guy, Big J, uh, he doesn't think that he's the one to look to to be saving the people. Check this out.
1: Last night, uh, or two nights ago, uh, they uh, named a suspect in the Sacramento shooting. Uh, DeAndre Martin, I believe, is the guy's name, and his arrest, or his, uh, yeah, he got arrested. They're not sure if he's a shooter, but they think he's involved. And initially, that's DeAndre or D'Andre or whatever his name is, Martin, one of the suspects. And initially over Twitter, uh, people mistakenly Googled a D'Andre and came up with a guy that looks kind of Russian or white. He's wearing one, looks like he's wearing one of those hats. I don't know if that's his hat or it's his hair. But initially over Twitter, people thought that was DeAndre Martin. And there was a celebration because the Sacramento shooter that killed several black people outside of a nightclub. I think there were some Latino people also killed, but there was a celebration because it was like, oh my God, the, the shooter's a white guy and we can continue with our racial divided narrative and black Twitter can celebrate and, and we got something to work with here. And then very quickly, people figured out, nah, that ain't D'Andre Martin. And they came up with the real D'Andre Martin and then all of a sudden, the pendulum swung the other way, and just as, as I suspected, uh, this is the typical gang activity that has plagued major cities across America for many years. And, and today, or earlier today, or late last night, uh, a second suspect, D'Andre's brother, who goes by the name of Smiley Martin. He was arrested. And he's, again, we don't know if he's a shooter, but he's involved. And and anyway, to me, this pointed out part of the lunacy of social media and Twitter and the racial divide and the racial conversation of Twitter and this, this whole phenomenon that uh, we started calling eight, 10 years ago, Black Twitter. And what I call Black Twitter basically is the marketing arm of the Black KKK. And I have used the term the Black KKK for years. Uh, and I've talked about how uh, the original KKK White men in hoods that terrorized black communities, lynched uh, black people, threatened them, bullied them with the threat of violence, uh, called them the N-word repeatedly. That was their favorite pet word for black people. Uh, I have argued that the black KKK has replaced the original KKK and many of the KKK, they call themselves Bloods or Crips, Gangster Disciples, uh, they call themselves Gangster Rappers, uh, and, and now they call themselves Black Twitter, and that's like the marketing arm of the Black KKK. They uh, defend, nothing to see here, Who, Black KK they're dropping bodies all over America, black bodies all over America, Chicago, Baltimore, Sacramento, Indianapolis, Philadelphia, everywhere. The black KKK just terrorizes communities. Their favorite word is the N-word. Often the last thing their victims hear uh, before their death is, uh, I smoke that N-word. And the N-word is, you know, somehow this term of endearment and, you know, but it's the favorite word of the people who are doing a lot of violence towards black people. And, and so I started using this term, I think, in 2006, 2007. And it it may have had something to do If my memory serves me right, when Sean Taylor, the Washington Redskins football great, uh, was killed in his home, I think that was the first time I used the term the black KKK, saying that's who likely killed him. Uh, You know, some black dudes or gang members or or whatever. And people lost their mind. And, And some people loved it, black liberals, Uh, Hated it how this is offensive. This is painful. Oh, the KKK did all of this damage to us a hundred years ago and For anybody to make any analogy to them is is reprehensible I'm Tell me what the Bloods and the Crips What's the difference between them and the KKK? Bloods and the Crips hate black people those are the bodies they're dropping constantly. Gangster disciples, that's the bodies they're dropping. They're tossing the N-word around, doing damage to terrorizing black communities, have people living in fear. Oh, 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 but, but they're black and that's special. And that that's proximity crime. When When, when these two brothers potentially participated in this deal out in Sacramento, that's because they're all in proximity to each other. It has no connection to their uh, disrespect, lack of reverence, respect for black people, animus they may carry towards black people, indiscriminately violent towards black people. (sighs) That's all proximity. It's just because they just all happen to be neighbors. Now, again, I'm not sure if these guys, half the people they dropped, there's a couple of women involved here, if they even knew them. This is a lack of respect for black people and and a lack of respect for the sanctity of our lives. That's all it is. And so a lot of this, the protection of the black KKK, is driven by black Twitter and these social media apps. Because if you point out what's obvious, that there is a black-on-black crime problem, violence problem, and that there is uh, a lack of respect for uh, black life, and that lack of respect manifests itself most often in other black people, Oh, Twitter goes off on you. you're a sellout. You're a racist. Uh, you don't want to talk about, um, you know, white people and white supremacy. I I don't live in fear of the KKK. That's something my forefathers' ancestors uh, lived in fear of. I don't. I don't live in fear of the Bloods and the Crips. But there's a far more likely chance of them doing harm to me than the Proud Boys or anybody else. But but I, I wanna connect this all to social media bec- and, and particularly Twitter because there's this celebration going on in conservative circles that Elon Musk has bought a substantial stake in Twitter and Elon Musk, Elon Musk believes in free speech and Twitter's about to change because Elon Musk, I believe, owns 9%. He bought a $3 billion stake. Uh, is it? Uh, he's the biggest shareholder, I think, now in Twitter. And now he's maybe chairman of the board, or he's got some position on the board, a seat on the board. And, oh, Twitter's about to change. Elon Musk is going to change it. He is a believer in free speech, he's an independent thinker, and look, there's Twitter's employees upset that Elon Musk bought this large stake, and they're quitting, and they're upset, and and Twitter's gonna change, and things are gonna be better. I don't buy any of that. And that's hats off to Elon Musk for buying Twitter. Uh, I wish him well, and I hope to be proven wrong with what I'm about to say. But I don't think Twitter is about to undergo some metamorphosis, some change that's going to have any impact on the problems we have going on in modern America today. Twitter has done its job. The reason why, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, the reason why Elon Musk was able to buy such a large chunk of it is because Twitter is over. It's, it's job mission accomplished. That's why Jack Dorsey exited several months ago and handed it over to someone else. It's because his invention that he and others founded had done its job. It, it has completely and totally racially polarized America. It has empowered uh, the left It has empowered and amplified the voices of the LGBTQ, uh, the transphobic community. It has empowered and amplified and um, allowed the left to seize power in the places where it wanted to seize power. Twitter has no more to offer the far left. And Twitter, isn't just just like the N-word, Twitter's not going to be remade into something that actually is a force for good. You understand what I'm saying? Twitter has made, when's the last time Twitter has made a star? That's what Twitter used to be the the platform where uh, people like Sean King were installed as influencers, people like DeRay McKesson from Black Lives Matter, Sean King from Black Lives Matter. Sean King got to pretend to be black on Twitter and built a platform on Twitter. Twitter doesn't do that anymore. Twitter doesn't make stars anymore. Twitter doesn't create influencers anymore. TikTok does. Instagram does. Take, uh, you guys have heard me reference Kevin Samuels. That dude has virtually no imprint on Twitter, but he's a megastar on YouTube and on Instagram. Kwame Brown from a few months ago. That's a total YouTube, Instagram phenomenon. Twitter does not make stars anymore. Its influence is over and dead and Elon Musk isn't gonna resuscitate it. Critter created little satanic influencers like Sean King, DeRay McKesson, and others. And now those guys have gone off and started little charity groups and organizations. Twitter uh, made the whole little, the, the three lesbians that founded Black Lives Matter, that was a Twitter hashtag. Empowered them, they've all bought mansions now. They all uh, sit on boards of charities. They all speak. They're all on the college campus speaking circuit. And all, they all are demanding ten to $20,000 to hear them speak on college campuses. Twitter's made all the stars that it's going to make. On Wednesday's show, Jason
0: talks about ESPN and the massive spending spree that they've been on lately and all of the talent that they've been acquiring. And Big J kind of feels like this whole thing's gonna backfire on them once the whole woke mob and the sports media gets wind of what's going on with them. Kind of has a point, take a listen.
1: ESPN's recent spending spree on Troy Aikman, Joe Buck, Adam Schefter, and Adrian Wojnarowski will soon be problematic. The worldwide leader in woke Will be forced to explain why it dumped 250 million dollars in contracts on four white men in a span of one month these types of exclamations explanations are necessary when businesses embrace diversity inclusion and equity die mandates established by the blm lgbtqia plus alphabet mafia every decision not just hiring decisions, has a racial, gender, sexuality, and political component that must be met. If certain boxes are not checked, Jamel Hill, Elle Duncan, Maria Taylor, and their Alphabet Mafia allies running corporate human resources departments huddle to plot their revenge. The only thing more dangerous than a scorned woman, is a pack of them in partnership with biological men looking to emote feminine energy. Aikman, Buck, Schefter, and Wojnowski now join their black heterosexual ally, Stephen A. Smith, atop the Alphabet Mafia's ESPN hit list. Jimmy Pitaro, the ESPN executive who authorized their contracts, probably thinks of these men as the network's Fab Five they're certainly paid like basketball stars. Aikman earns a reported 18 million a year, Buck earns 15 million, Stephen A. Smith, 12 million, Schefter, nine million, and Wojnowski, seven million. Yeah, Green with Envy does not adequately describe the waiting to excel. Text thread circulating among Hill, Duncan, Taylor, Malika Andrews, Kari Champion, Josina Anderson, Maney Kynes, Sarah Spain, Leah Thomas, and Bomani Jones. In that fictional thread, the Fab Five are referred to as Stephen A. and the Blowfish, and the album is called Cracker Rear View. I'm gonna just think. Stephen A and the Blowfish, Cracker Rearview. For those of you that are a little young, that's Hootie and the Blowfish, Crack Rearview. Uh, but anyway, let me continue. Not all of the complaints will be unjustified. Schefter and Wojanowski are grossly overpaid. Twitter should be paying them, not ESPN. I like and respect Schefter and his work ethic. I respect Warjanowski's work ethic too but they can both be replaced. No one turns on the TV to see Adam Schefter or Adrian Wojnarowski. We follow them on Twitter for their information. They're handed information from NFL and NBA insiders because ESPN is still the most powerful TV platform to disseminate information about those leagues. Schefter's primary value is that he's willing to live a miserable life attached to several cell phones at all times. Fox's Jay Glazer quit that lifestyle several years ago. Few people are willing to make the lifestyle sacrifices Schefter makes. That sacrifice is worth four or five million a year. Wojnowski is obscenely overpaid. He is embarrassingly bad on TV. He's virtually worthless on air. He's solely a Twitter feed. Years ago, when he worked at Yahoo Sports, Wojnowski wrote influential and insightful columns about the NBA. He no longer does this. He tweets. He's either unwilling to share what he knows about the NBA culture, or he only knows NBA transactions. He's a newspaper agate. He's an agate clerk being paid like a lead newspaper columnist. Brian Windhorst, Sham, Shania and Chris Haynes could replace Janowski tomorrow without impacting ESPN's business model. Janowski is worth two million dollars. I have no problem with the money ESPN paid to lure Aikman and Buck from Fox Sports. They're worth it. Their arrival dramatically impacts the perception of ESPN's NFL coverage. Under previous ESPN president John Skipper, the network created the perception that it hated football. The Monday Night Football broadcast booth was turned into a shrine for the LGBTQIA community when Skipper paired coaching legend John Gruden with Sean McDonough and Lisa Salters. The replacement booths featuring Steve Levy, Jason Witten, Booger McFarland, Brian Greasy and Louis Riddick barely improved the Alphabet Squad. Aikman and Buck know how to sell football. They appear to love the game. Their addition to ESPN will make the NFL more comfortable improving the Monday night football schedule. Given the broadcasting shakeup across ESPN, Fox, and NBC, you could argue Monday night might replace Sunday night as the NFL's most important destination. That alone makes Aikman and Buck worth every penny spent. As for Stephen A. Smith, Of course he's overpaid. His signature show, First Take, averages 400,000 viewers. He's paid like he's Tucker Carlson, who averages close to four million viewers. In fairness, Carlson's show is half as long as Smith's, but Carlson is a singular host, not relying on a co-host or a rotating cast of debate partners. Smith is a barbershop gimmick supported by props debate is the star of Smith's gimmick, not his own talent. The same goes for his uh, Fox Sports counterpart, Skip Bayless. After the success of Tony Kornheiser, Mike Wilbon and Pardon the Interruption, sport TV networks let a charlatan, Jamie Horowitz, convince ESPN and Fox Sports that debate was the draw and then they paid the marginally talented trolls like they were must-see TV. The flawed concept and saturation wound up diminishing the real talent and chemistry between Kornheiser and Wilbon. In terms of audience, the debate shows have a very limited ceiling, but that hasn't stopped ESPN and Fox Sports from overpaying for its trolls, race baiters, and shouters. Nothing has changed about television talk shows since syndicated columnist Ed Sullivan debuted Toast of the Town in 1948. It was later renamed The Ed Sullivan Show. TV talk is always about the talent, likability, and point of view of the host. It was true for Sullivan, Johnny Carson, Dave Letterman, Oprah Winfrey, Arsenio Hall, Jon Stewart, Bill O'Reilly, and Rachel Maddow. No one tuned in to see Carson debate Ed McMahon. Forced debate is a telltale sign of a lack of talent. So is the argument that justifies jobs on the base of diversity, inclusion, and equity. D.I.E. will be the death of ESPN. Stephen A. and the blowhards ruin sports TV.
0: On Thursday's show, my guy, Comedian and TV host Jon Stewart. Okay, did I just say he was my guy? Or should I say my former guy? Because after this comment, he's no longer my guy. Hey man, y'all remember Jon Stewart? Well, he just recently said that the American dream is not attainable for black people. And believe me, Jason had something
1: to say about that. Comedian Jon Stewart is a member of the Dream Team, the high-profile squad of pundits tasked with framing men who died 200 years ago with race crimes committed within the last 60 years. Stewart just might be the Johnny Cochran of the new Dream Team. He is eloquent, clever, and passionate. He's adept at making people believe he believes the bullshit he utters. On the latest episode of the problem with john stewart the 59 year old political commentator argued that the american dream is unattainable for black people
2: uh watch these clips how crazy the the literal interpretation of the american dream is that is it doesn't matter where you were born or how you were born or who you are that in this country you can rise up and go beyond that. And it turns out to be a fallacy. But I wonder, you know, when we say, oh, in 2040 or 2050, when the demographics change and we won't know what will happen, I feel like we know what will happen because it's it's what's happened from the very beginning. And I would say, yeah the formation of the union the compromise that was made with the southern states that black slaves would count as three-fifths but they can't vote but you can count them there has always been a redistribution of power to the white elite and it happened every time right after the civil war what happened black people began to rise up they began to get uh, economic uh, power they began to get legislative power they began to live the dream that this country is supposedly made up. And so what did they do? The idea that if you build something that intentionally over 400 years, you have to dismantle it with the same intentionality. And that doesn't mean like three extra points on your college admission test. Like, that's not it. Mm. Dismantle
1: talking about the Constitution. For much of the last decade, at the behest of the Chinese Communist Party and the globalist agenda, the American left, in cooperation with big tech, corporate media, and major corporations, have been hosting what I'm calling the trial of the centuries. The U.S. Constitution is on trial. It has been charged with the murder, degradation, and disenfranchisement of black people. If found guilty, the left will use the conviction as justification for sentencing this country's founding document to the death penalty and joining a new world order that models China's authoritarian communist government. Earlier in the trial of the centuries, the left called corroborating witnesses, such as celebrated author ta Coates, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, New York Times reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones, coaching legend Greg Popovich, fentanyl addict and career criminal George Floyd, and of course, the mute Hamid Ali of social justice, Colin Kaepernick. We're now in the closing arguments of the trial where witness testimony is strung together to form a narrative that explains why black people are not closing educational, economic, health, family, housing, and crime gaps. The left's dream team is arguing that Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Ben Franklin, and the founding fathers assassinated black people at the formation of this country. They laced the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights with just enough racial bigotry to blunt the rise of black people. Eli Mistall, a Harvard miseducated pundit, began the left's closing argument on The View in early March. He trashed the Constitution. Watch, listen for yourself.
2: So are you arguing for throwing out the Constitution? Should the Constitution be thrown out? What do we do? Is it a living document is it a, or is it a sacred document?
1: It's certainly not sacred. All right, let's start there. <laughs> the Constitution is kind of trash. Now, <laughs> well, let's just, again, let's just talk as adults for second. What did you say? It's what? It's, it's kind of trash. Trash? It was, it was written by slavers and colonists and white people who were willing to make deals with slavers and colonists. They didn't ask anybody look like me what they thought about the Constitution. Mm-hmm. They didn't say, oh, Jim, come over here. What do you think about this old Constitution? Uh, well, Massa, I so don't like how you sell my children. <laughs> Ms. Stahl and John Stewart, they're on the same team, the same dream team. They're arguing that the crimes committed against black people 240 years ago have more impact than the culture crimes committed against black people in the last 60 years. Stewart and Mistal are framing Jefferson and Washington for crimes committed by Lyndon Johnson's Great Society Welfare Initiative, Gloria Steinem's second wave feminist movement, Hollywood and the music industry's glorification of black criminality and debauchery. Over the last 60 years, the left sold black people a godless, hedonist, materialistic culture that undermined our pursuit of the American dream. Joe Biden defined blackness as allegiance to the Democratic political party. No group has swallowed the fallacy of success through embracement of liberal ideology more than black voters. In our quest for political power, black women have formed a stronger bond with men and women suffering sexual and gender dysphoria than with heterosexual black men. Our actions state, we believe gay is the new black and trans people govern Wakanda. The political left captured our minds and immersed us in a culture that reimagines freedom as the courage to reject religious values and principles, see ourselves as victims, and place our fate in the hands of well-intentioned white liberals. The left committed a deadly thought crime. It trained black people to seek salvation through white people. The American dream is not the civil rights movement. The American dream is an individual pursuit. It's about a man or woman perfecting himself. The founding documents are laced with Christian ideas and values. Christianity is an individual battle. Social justice is about improving others. Christianity is about improving yourself. The secular values promoted to black people over the last 60 years made our path to the American dream far more arduous. That's the crime. That's what has murdered, degraded, and disenfranchised black people. The Dream Team wants to blame the failure of their policies to empower black people on white men who died 230 years ago. Yeah, our little welfare scheme and policies, that would all work if it wasn't for George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and those idiots. We'd have you dependent upon the government. We'd be rationing out freedom and food and all your supplies to you if it wasn't for those right racist idiots 200 and some odd years ago. And you'd be happy. They committed the crime, the leftists. And they're blaming people from 200 years ago. This is the equivalent of Johnny Cochrane pinning the death of Nicole Brown Simpson on Bronco Nagurski the 1930s Chicago Bears running back. The audacity of this defense strategy is unprecedented. It's all based on lies and misinformation. Stewart argued that the infamous Three-Fifths Compromise invalidates the Constitution. The Three-Fifths Compromise punished slave-holding states. Abolitionists. Abolitionists, the people that wanted to end slavery. They they did not want slaves to count towards population and therefore political representation. Southern states, slave owners, wanted the slaves to count toward population while, while the slaves held no voting rights. See, they wanted the extra people so the South would have more power. The abolitionists, the non-slaveholders, the people that wanted to end slavery, they forced the Three-Fifths Compromise to hurt the slaveholding states. You have people arguing that this Three-Fifths thing was somehow some racist plot. It was a plot against the racists, and Jon Stewart knows it. He's lying. You've been lied to. You've never been taught history properly. You've been taking your history from rappers and other paid off idiots. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were documents written with an eye toward ending slavery. That's an undeniable fact. Eli Mistall is so vapid that he can't comprehend that the Constitution is a set of ideas and that looks do not determine ideas. It's irrelevant that no one looked like him. Brain function determines ideas. The Constitution was influenced by a biblical worldview. That influence is why the document has stood up for 246 years and eradicated unfairness from American laws and institutions. Stewart and Mistyall are typical lawyers. The guilt of their client is irrelevant. It's all billable hours. The globalists want a new world order and a new constitution. Assassinating the character of long dead white men is the least of their crimes.
0: On Friday's show, I don't even know how to even describe this for you. The big guy reached way back in his bag of tricks and pulled out one of his best ones ever. All I can tell you is you have to check this out. Listen to this.
1: Did you guys know, any of you sports fans out there, that uh, over the course of his 15 year NBA career, Michael Jordan played all 82 NBA games nine times. Nine times Michael Jordan played all 82 regular season NBA games over the course of his 15 year career, 15 season career. Uh, LeBron James, in playing, I think, 19 seasons, he's done that once. He's played all 82 games one time, I believe off the top of my head. That was in 2017. He played all 82 games. Other than that, it's been load management here, injury there, rest here. And, And so the other night, I believe it was Tuesday night, the Lakers were facing playoff elimination. They were playing at home against the Phoenix Suns, the best team in the NBA. Lakers are f- facing playoff elimination Tuesday night. LeBron James set out with a sore ankle. He missed a playoff elimination game with a sore ankle. I know the initial thought, people that you know can't stand me, is, ah, like, oh, here goes Whitlock beating up LeBron again. I'm not bringing this up to beat up LeBron. I'm not trying to denigrate LeBron James with this anecdote. I'm just speaking facts about a cultural shift in basketball. Michael Jordan, the best player perhaps of all time in the NBA, took great pride in playing all 82 regular season games. There were like three other times he played 80 or more most of his career, including his final season with the Washington Wizards at age uh, 39. Michael Jordan played all 82 games. He was a reflection of that era and how important competition was to his era of basketball players. LeBron James is the uh, greatest player of the post-Jordan era. Not trying to denigrate him. But he's also a symbol of where NBA culture and sports culture has gone. Competition has been de-emphasized. Having the greatest competitive fire is not as important as it used to be. And it's easy to say, players have just gone soft, it's all about money, Uh, they're just not built like, Michael Jordan and the guys from that era, the whole thing has gone soft and LeBron's a wimp. That's not what I'm arguing. I'm arguing that there has been a cultural shift and something has been done to the culture to shift it so that the sports world is less competitive and more soft. Or is it softer? I don't know if it's more, so- it's probably softer. The sports world is softer. And I say, and and what this conversation is about today, is that Disney is the reason sports culture has gone soft. In 1996, Disney acquired ABC and ESPN. They took over the worldwide leader in sports. Disney did in 1996. Jordan's Heyday in the NBA ended, uh, I think, in 1998. So at the tail end of Jordan's dominance of the NBA, his second three-peat with the Chicago Bulls, here comes Disney in to take over the worldwide leader in sports, ESPN. And at the time, no one thought much about it, No one knew the significance of it, but I think here in 2022, it should be becoming quite apparent that when Disney takes over an industry, it's going to significantly change that industry. And Disney's acquisition of ESPN was an acquisition of the sports world and Disney's influence on the sports world. And so just to put this all in further perspective, uh, two years before, in 1994, Disney tried to acquire NBC and failed. NBC at the time had the NBA contract. Bob Costas, Ahmad Rashad, Isaiah Ta- NBC was in partnership with the NBA at the time that Disney tried to acquire NBC and failed in 1994. They turn around two two years later, take over ABC and therefore ESPN. Six years after acquiring ESPN and ABC, Disney bought the rights to the NBA. Disney, again, a global corporation with a global vision wanted to get involved in America's most global sports, basketball. And so Disney, immediately after getting ESPN and ABC, they go out and buy the NBA in 2002. One year later, LeBron James enters the NBA. And so LeBron James, entering the NBA in 2003, he enters a league that is in bed with Disney and enters a league that has a global vision. And he has bought all into it with Nike and everything else. And LeBron James is part of a strategy that Disney has for sports, particularly basketball, to promote the values most important to Disney. So now I'm going to transition and take a little break from the sports aspect of this and then now let's just discuss and evaluate Disney's agenda unrelated to sports that is becoming very widely known and accepted. It's being unmasked that Disney has an agenda as it relates to grooming and grooming kids. And so any of you that have been paying attention to social media and the media space have been watching this conversation about grooming play out all over social media. And so maybe there's some of you, because someone asked me the other day over social media, what is grooming? And because the word groomers and grooming is being used a lot over social media, it's being talked about, and, and people are... People on the left are very defensive about this charge that they're groomers, and some some people don't know. So I, I want to read you, this is kind of the definition with my little tweak on it. Again, and, and with no negative intent, I'm not trying to take anything out of control, but this is what my definition of grooming is, based off of everything I've read up, how other people have described grooming. Grooming is the act of building a relationship, trust. An emotional connection with a child so that you can shape their sexual, gender, political, and racial worldview. Grooming. Building a relationship with a child so that you can shape their sexual, gender, political, and racial worldview. This is what the Parental Rights Bill in Florida is about. It's trying to stop this grooming process that's going on in our schools. Ron DeSantis is at the forefront, and Florida is at the forefront of this fight. They have passed a parental rights law that Disney, a California-based company, has publicly opposed. Disney and its employees have put Ron DeSantis and Florida and this bill in the crosshairs. They've called it the don't say gay bill. It has nothing to do with saying the word gay. It's about parents being able to control, object to school systems, trying to teach kindergartners through third grade. That's four, five, six, and seven-year-olds about sexuality and gender. Parents in Florida, and most right-minded parents, they want the right to teach their kids about sexuality and gender. They want to groom their children in the way that they see fit, not leave it to crazy school teachers.
0: Hey, this is your boy Uncle Jimmy. Go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit the like, hit the subscribe, join the Fearless Army. Oh, yeah, by the way, don't forget, he still wants you to give me four stars. Hey, go to the Fearless Army and get you some gear. Get you some swaggy gear. This is your boy, Uncle Jimmy, and I'm out of here.